0: If you didn't need the money, would you still show up to your job? I'm John Weems. I've spent half of my career in the corporate world and the other half in full-time spiritual guidance as a pastor. I respect people of all views unless they are totally closed-minded a-holes. I am not here to tell you what to believe. I am here to encourage you to think beyond the check. Welcome to this podcast where we talk about work, life, and the meaning of our time here. You'll hear from a wide range of business people, from multiple backgrounds. In today's episode, we hear from Tina Tran, head of virtual reality educational content for Oculus at Facebook. Tina has lived an incredible life. She has literally been captured by pirates, survived a refugee camp, and made a sustained contribution to the world through her work in Silicon Valley. Tina, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to uh, be able to join you on this podcast.
0: So, uh, we'll start out talking a little bit about work, but let's take it back very early. What what was your first job?
1: So, my first job um, was was part of a family business. And um, we came to the U.S. uh, from Vietnam when I was four, and my father was an attorney in Vietnam. But when we came here, he That wasn't such easy work to transfer to the U.S. You have to learn a lot of new laws and go back to law school. So he started a uh, gardening business. And by gardening business, I mean he was a gardener. So he Mm -hmm. mowed people's lawns. And my brother and I often helped my dad by putting flyers on people's doorsteps and on their cars when I was in uh, junior high school on the weekends to help him get new customers. So my first job was, I guess, canvassing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Did you ever, do you have any, any uh, positive or negative experiences while canvassing?
1: Um, it was kind of tough, right? People don't like, uh, people that are passing out flyers. So I got a lot of kind of like get out of (laughs) here and that was unpleasant. And it actually, you know, I think that kind of reminds you to be kind to everybody. So I think I learned that relatively early. I would never tell anybody to like get off my property or somebody's just doing work. Right. So if you don't want something to say, no, thank you.
0: Yes, yes, so tell, so through those experiences as you're growing up, working hard, experiencing the the realities of the public, um, what were some of the early uh, early careers you you dreamt about?
1: So funny enough, in the 1980s, um, early 80s, I, the first thing I remember seeing on TV was Ronald Reagan. So his, his image is kind of etched in my, in my mind. The second image that really pops out is Connie Chung mm. because she was on the news mm-hmm. every day and we would watch the news every day as we were learning English. And I was really fascinated by her and I thought her job looked really cool. So, you know, it speaks to the old age adage that, um, if you can see it, you can be it. Right. And so I thought for a long time, I would say through college that I wanted to be, um, in, uh, broadcast journalism and to do hard hitting interviews and be on TV.
0: Yes. Yeah. So when, when did tech enter your consciousness as a a potential career pursuit?
1: Um, so around the time I was graduating from college, which is 1997, uh, I joined a management consulting firm in New York and that's when, the tech world, the internet startup, boom, uh, was taking place in San Francisco. So shortly after starting in New York, I moved a year later to San Francisco, transferred practices, and then left management consulting because I knew I wanted to do business development mm-hmm. for um, an internet company, a software startup.
0: So we'll circle back to Oculus in a minute. Sure. Uh, talk a little bit about pre-Oculus. What were some of the, the you know, jobs you enjoyed the most or didn't? And you don't have to name sure, names if
1: you're no. I loved management consulting. I feel like they should have a class in college to teach you the things that you learn when you're in management consulting. So they teach you Excel, PowerPoint, um, not just how to use them, but how to you know, apply them to business, how to make E- meaningful presentations how to put a presentation together so that every slide has like a so what to it like what am i taking away from this um so that was a really fun job and i was surrounded by really smart driven people and that makes you motivated i'm very competitive so it's nice for me to be around around people that are smarter than me so i can work harder and learn from them uh, so i would say that was probably the most fun job i ever had uh, the second like coolest job was uh job doing international business development for SaaS. i Mm. worked out of their german germany headquarters in heidelberg and i got to travel all over europe on business and meeting partners and growing our uh, software business our consulting business and for a 26 year old at the time traveling on somebody else's dollar all over europe (laughs) (laughs) and meeting clients was pretty cool so i loved that um, I think the job I least enjoyed was uh, in banking because it's really dry. It's very uh, regulatory driven. So everything's very slow. Um, teams work for years on one project. I mean, goodness gracious, I just don't have that patience. Um, so I, I when I was in banking, I I really did not enjoy my job. I would meet people and they would say to me that they loved their jobs. And I would just look at them in awe, like, how do I get that existence? Uh, and I switched. I, I made the change. I went absolutely in the opposite direction and the next company i worked for uh was specializing in video games uh, so i went from banking to video games which was a, a leap and it took a lot of convincing to get the folks in the video game side to hire somebody that was a former management consultant former banker <laughs> but i was able to convince them that i loved video games and i played video games and i would be a good hire and i've been in video games more or less ever since
0: yeah. would have been some of your favorite video games through the years
1: you know it's always the classics i loved super mario and i remember playing that a lot after uh in junior high after school at my friend's house because we my parents certainly didn't buy us <laughs> any <laughs> consoles for us to play video games uh so that i i love that and i love the classics in the arcade like galaga and Mrs. Yeah, yeah.
0: And Ms. Pac-Man, are you a turbo Miss Pac-Man person or, you know, regular speed?
1: I think I'm regular speed.
0: Okay. (laughs) You've mastered that. Yeah. Good. So for those who who aren't completely familiar with with VR, virtual reality, um, what is Oculus? Can you share a little bit about the company background and, and how you got connected here?
1: We have a platform whereby you buy the hardware. And then once you get the really cool hardware, you need to have great content to to watch or experience or interact with, uh, and I'm on the content team.
0: Any any surprises about VR in general for you coming in?
1: I think a lot of people um, initially, before they try it out, assume it's a gimmick and they just don't really get it or understand. But I I've found that as soon as people try out an experience um, that's well made, that doesn't make you sick, that transforms your idea of what VR is about. Mm-hmm. They get really excited about how it can be applied so um, and how fun it can be so that that's that 's generally been my experience and that 's great. You just have to get more people exposed to it
0: well we 'll we'll circle back to to work in a minute. You had referenced your early childhood uh, here from vietnam and and your your father going through his own transformation. I know your childhood was was far from typical. Can you maybe paint a little bit of a, a picture for us of your some of your earliest experiences and and how you made your way to the U.S.
1: Sure. So um, when Vietnam fell in 1975, my mother was pregnant with me. So it wasn't uh, possible for us to leave. And uh, we waited and basically hid out for over three years. And we knew that time was running out. So my mom, um, we decided we were going to escape. And my mom went to there was a catholic church across the street from where we lived and we had a catholic nanny who watched over my brother and me she went over to the church um and asked the nuns to pray for us because even though our family was buddhist she basically wanted every chance that we could have and <laughs> every god to be on our side before this like really dangerous journey and she made a deal with them to say that if we uh as a family all made it over safe to the u.s and we're, were uh, reunited, then. Um, She would sacrifice her youngest to the Catholic religion. (laughs) That happens to be me. (laughs) So my first memory in life is uh, actually being handed over to a pirate. It was a very perilous um, moment when our boat was captured by pirates. And at that time, you just didn't know if pirates were uh, friendly pirates or bad pirates. If they were friendly, they would just take all your stuff. If they were bad, they would kill and or rape you. And that would be the end of that. So they were hoping as a goodwill gesture, to hand over a little girl, and that the pirates would have mercy. And they did. They were really nice to me. Um, I smiled, tried not to cry and scream in their face because it was really scary. And I, I remember these you know men that were kind of greasy, long hair with big machetes in their hands, you know speaking a language that I did not understand. Um, and I remember, you know, at least their kindness towards me. Um, in that they didn't kill me, uh, and nor did they threaten me. But they did, you know, threaten a lot of other people on our boat to to get what they wanted. But they, they didn't harm anybody. Yeah.
0: Now, that sort of traumatic experience, how do you process that as a young child?
1: It's interesting because as a child, you you think it's I don't know that you think it's normal, but it's your experience, and you don't know any different. Um, I think what was harder, what has been harder for me to process, is my experience living in a refugee camp for a year after that. And I think people look at me and they would never think that I am a refugee or that I grew up uh, for some informative time in a refugee camp. I remember what it's like to be really hungry. And I remember what it was like to sit and watch other people eat and and not cry, but have like big tears in my eyes because I was hungry. And I, And I recall you know, adults turning to my mom and saying, can you move her like out of our sight? Cause it's really hard for us to eat with her watching us. And it wasn't that I didn't have my part. I, I, you know, I had my, my portion. It just wasn't enough. Um, so I do get emotional when I think about, when I remember what it's like to be hungry. It's really weird. Um, but I'm incredibly grateful for that experience because, as I've grown up in the U.S. and as I've had really magical experiences that maybe other people would think are magical, it's allowed me to be really grateful and very much in the moment and look at everything with a sense of wonder and joy, um, whether it's a nice hotel or whether it's, you know, um, flying in an airplane, just really silly things that we all take for granted, um, going to the White House and uh, just being an American citizen it's uh you know there I think it's those things that I appreciate more in life because of uh what I know my beginnings were like and also I have a lot of pride in what I've been able to achieve and I'm I'm happy that I've been able to make my parents proud because I know how much they've sacrificed for us you know going on that perilous journey I think it was probably more for us than for themselves um and you know my dad going from being a lawyer and, and then he was a politician in the south vietnamese government and then coming to the u.s and just saying i've got to do whatever i need to do and if i have to mow people's lawns and southern california it was like 100 degrees all the time in the summer and he would be mowing like my friend's lawns you know and so it was um and he never complained he just did it for us and his work was hard his hands were always dirty um He'd get cut and hurt sometimes, right? Because you're, you're dealing with a lot of different things. Um, he's never complained, and I love him so much for it. Yeah.
0: Now, how... Circling back, roughly how old were you in your refugee camp experience?
1: I was uh, between the ages of three and four. We landed in the U.S. in 1979, so that that was like a 10-month period.
0: And where was the camp?
1: The camp was in Malaysia, so you basically ended up wherever your boat floated to. And uh, I'll be forever grateful to the Red Cross. It was a Red Cross camp, and moms lined up every day to get their portion of milk, and the kids lined up every day to get our to get our one cookie-a-day allotment. Um, and it was a scary place because, you know, refugees as, as, as people in general, it's not just good people. It's not just bad people. It was a mix of folks. So some of us, the refugees were families and some of the refugees might've been criminals and there was, you know, there are no doors. We were just in tarps. So it was kind of a dangerous place to be as a, as a young family. Um, and I just remember being very scared of my mom abandoning me because I was surrounded, um, by people I didn't know in a place that I was not familiar with. So every time I woke up from a nap and she was maybe standing in line for milk, I would cry as if somebody was like murdering me. And was just, I was, I felt really, really unsafe. Um, and now as an adult, I, I, I really value my safety. I really value stability and security. Um, and I feel very safe, uh, but I'm always still very cognizant of things around me that might not be safe.
0: Yeah. How So, you've mentioned growing up Buddhist and and then your mom's sacrifice to the Catholic Church. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how all of these experiences formed you spiritually and and your current spirituality uh, to the extent you're comfortable discussing it.
1: No, absolutely. So, it's interesting because um, I think being a Christian to me is uh, something I see as like very American and uh, it wasn't a goal, but I from a very young age, assimilated very well into American culture. I felt like I was an American. And it was rarely ever pointed out to me that I wasn't. So I feel like I was very welcomed. Um, And I think, you know, my parents, they didn't realize that they were supposed to take me to church, I don't think. So even though they had me baptized as a Catholic when I was eight, um, I never went to church with them because they're Buddhist. They didn't go to Catholic church. So as an adult, I think what's nice is my journey to my faith was – wasn't because my mom sacrificed me, but it was because I was generally interested in what the church could provide. And, uh, I happened to live really close to Presbyterian church, uh, when I first moved to San Francisco. And when I say really close, I mean a half a block away. <laughs> and, uh, I started going to that church and Dr. Laird, uh, Stewart had, uh, just incredible sermons. So I just kept coming back because it really resonated with me, sort of his sermons around how to be a better human being, um, how to be a better steward in your community, um, how to help others. And so it was not this like gloom and doom that I'm necessarily familiar with. And maybe that's uh, associated more with other types of churches, but the Presbyterian church really resonated with me in terms of um, their overall value of how you show up in your community. It's, and I remember very clearly sermons like, you know, I don't want you to come here and look really nice and be in your best Sunday you know, outfit and then to treat others poorly you know, the rest of the week. Like, I'd rather you just come, however, and just treat people nicely. So it's really important that it's not about appearances. You don't go to church because it's what you do. It, you go so that you can be a good, good person and you behave that way in your life.
0: How how did and how does your spirituality impact your work?
1: I, it does in that um, it's purpose-driven work. And, and I feel very grateful that I get paid to do a job that is purpose-driven. A lot of us aren't that lucky. We're, and I, I obviously in, in the past did not have jobs that were necessarily purpose-driven. So um, being able to be involved in uh, educational content and bringing more VR educational content to schools and hopefully providing more ac- equity to access and more, providing more access to opportunity. Um, those are areas that I think um, are important for me from feeling good that I'm, I'm leaving the world or I'm, I'm, I'm doing some good in the world uh, and hopefully leaving it better than, than I came into it.
0: Do you believe in callings?
1: I do believe in callings. I mean, from an early age, I've always really wanted to help people, and I've always had a big heart for anybody that was crying or hurting or in pain. And uh, my first time back to Vietnam, I did a wheelchair distribution with a nonprofit, faith based nonprofit in the US called Hope Haven. they fixed uh, wheelchairs during the year and then shipped them back on a barge to Vietnam and then would go and distribute wheelchairs to folks that needed it in Vietnam. And I was really interested in this work. And I went back and my parents... Um, we're like, why are you interested in this? We don't quite understand. And so uh, they didn't actually raise me to be like somebody that went out and helped people. Um, you know, I think they, as refugees and immigrants, they were very focused on helping our family and making sure that we would stand on our feet. And so I think I had the privilege to not just think about like feeding myself, but then like wanting to help others. Um, but it, it definitely is. There's definitely a connection there. Yeah.
0: Are there any spiritual practices that you find helpful?
1: One spiritual practice, which may or may not be considered spiritual, is taking a deep breath, which is what a pastor would always, he would always start his sermons with, everybody now that you're here, take a deep breath. So I think um, meditation and taking deep breaths and, and reflecting, I don't know if reflecting is considered spiritual, but really reflecting upon um, what you're grateful for, reflecting upon the good in your life. Uh, reflecting upon what you might want to change and how you would go about changing those things. Um, and, and knowing that there is a, a higher purpose to it. All. I, I was just saying to a friend the other day, it would be so interesting, you know, when I do die, like to see what the afterlife really is like. Right. And so, um, when, and if this all really, if, if this all matters in the afterlife or not, and if there is an afterlife, but it was just really interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about that before. I guess I'm just getting older. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, how, so beyond your early childhood, mm-hmm. any times when it felt like your faith has been tested?
1: Um, I think in terms of my faith being tested, you know, there was a time where, and this is actually when I turned to the church, where if everything was just going very wrong, it was 2008 at the beginning of the recession when we knew, before we knew it was a recession, right? When we were just in it and it just sucked. And I, um, I was at a startup, this video game startup that I absolutely loved, and I loved my job. And uh, I, I was let go from that job. Very surprisingly, like it didn't. I did not see it coming. It broke my heart and I cried and that is really weird because I don't normally cry because I'm not that emotional but I cried I cried hard like I like ugly cried you know <laughs> your face turns bright red and then I came home and, and told my partner and I was engaged at the time and um he was like, God, could you just, maybe, could you not be so negative? So he didn't have much empathy. And it was really hard for me. So we actually broke up um, probably a week after I got laid off of my job. Um, so our engagement was off. And then I also didn't have a place to live because I had moved out of my place in San Francisco to, you know, we were engaged to, to live together so that we could start seeing what it was like. And uh, so I was homeless. My this, These future dreams I had to be to have a family and to be with this person. And then I'd lost my job and all of these things had more or less happened at once. Um, but the amazing thing was, um, you know, my family came, they, they supported me. They helped me move out. Um, my, my friends helped as much as they could. They had literally never seen me so, uh, emotional and so raw. And so I think it was maybe, interesting for them to see me in a vulnerable state because they'd known Tina as like strong Tina, tough Tina. Um, and I turned to the church. I started, I joined the adult, young adults, Bible study group. Um, and it was really helpful for me to have a place of like solace that I could come to, um, where I could be vulnerable, where I knew a lot of people were having challenges and where I could connect with somebody greater than than myself and my own experience um so that I, I would say that's probably been the area that has tested me the most when when all those things happened at once and I just remember the hardest part was like going out and interviewing in a time when I didn't realize like you know people aren't hiring they Really, because, you know, you're interviewing in a recession. And I would have to pretend like I was <laughs> happy and well-adjusted and, you know, my life hadn't just fallen apart. And that really tested <laughs> my faith in being able to, um, to you know, really focus on the positive things and, and just put your best foot forward. And to remember that, that old saying that uh, you never know, I guess, what, what hardships others are going through. Yes.
0: So you've you've persevered through more situations than most of us can can imagine. Thank you for sharing those. Um, now that you've you found a calling here at, at Oculus and Facebook, I understand you've been uh, spending some time with uh, some pretty well known world leaders, uh, maybe of the presidential variety. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to on that front?
1: I was uh, a friend of mine had been in this program called the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program that. That started maybe four years ago and this was started as a bipartisan effort between um, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and it was um, through their two presidential libraries and they put a program together and also that also included George H.W. Bush and Lyndon Johnson's presidential library. And their goal was to get leaders from across the spectrum of the United States, uh, from across different fields, to work on starting to solve some of the hard problems that Americans were facing. And um, they would, you would be able to hear from the presidents, the former presidents themselves, about stories and leadership lessons based on their experience while they were president. And you would also hear from their chief of staff and um, their, you know, members of their cabinet. So it's a really incredible program where you get to learn about, more in depth about the history of our country, how um, leadership works at that level. And then you get to meet this class of generally usually 60 people that are solving really hard problems in the areas where they work so for example there's this incredible woman that works um, and is the chief of staff for the Supreme Court Justice of the state of Louisiana and she's working to help um, provide new guidelines to judges around sending youth to, to prison so that you know kids that do things like fight, which is what kids do, aren't sent to prison for a year or longer because that impacts the rest of their lives. And, um, there's another person that's focusing on the immigrant population and how to get immigrants to help them to take, uh, their citizenship test. And that's the last step that they need to take. But often they don't know, they don't feel comfortable with the test. They don't know what's going to be on the test and they don't have anyone to help them study. So, you know, it's quite the gamut of, um, I think areas that people are focused on, and it's really unique because everybody is in a different field, but trying to help solve um, a very important problem and uh, and it's very sort of civically focused and it allows all of us to get together and as we do this work to have the support from one another um, and to have the right i guess leadership structure and principles and tactics from f- folks who have really been involved with making a big difference in our country.
0: Excellent. Now, Tina, I know uh, beyond work, you certainly have have a purpose uh, or multiple purposes. Can you share a little bit about life beyond work and and some of the the things that bring you joy?
1: Yeah. So uh, I feel very fortunate. My parents are still with me. Uh, and, um, I think after having Finnegan, who is my two-year-old, I have a much greater appreciation for them. I appreciated them before, but I did from time to time wonder like, why, why are they so devoted to me? I don't understand. And now that I have my own child, I, I, understand the devotion. Um, and I love seeing them with Finn. So that's, that's how, you know, I'm focused on spending more time with them. They don't, they don't live in San Francisco. They live in Southern California. So I'm trying to take more trips down. I have some really incredible friends who I know will be with me through thick and thin, like that marriage vow. I have some friends that I know like live and walk that and um will be with me and that I can lean on and and are not are 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 actually not folks who judge but are folks who just want to listen and provide you with a, a another perspective um so I'm really fortunate there, and um I think it's really important to take care. Of ourselves, so I tried to be thoughtful about um, having fun, going outside, working out, and and doing that with as a family, doing that with Finnegan, doing that with Paul, uh, and doing that with my friends you know rather than just like show up and eat dinners like we, I want to go on the road and, and hike and, and do other fun things and go to the beach and you know throw the ball around, so that you know those are things that that make me excited it's just moving um, my body, being active, and being around the people that um, that nourish me in a spiritual way.
0: Yeah. And Tina, last question. Um, how how do you define success, either for yourself or what do you want to teach Finn about what success means, means for him as a human and you know, what have you learned through all of these experiences?
1: That's a really hard one. I think it's very personal for everybody. Um, success for me means living a well-balanced life and um, a life that... I can look back on and be proud of where I've been of use to others, um, where I have been kind, um, where I have made a difference in other people's lives. Um, and like, you know, that would frankly be enough for me. I don't know if I, if I need to do much more than that. Yeah. I would think I would say that it would be a successful life.
0: Thank you for making time to listen today. Major gratitude to Tina for sharing her extraordinary life journey and gifts to impact the world in so many positive ways. I'm John Weems until next time, keep living and working beyond the check.